Um, tonight we are going to dive in and we are going to be talking about tithing. No, I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not doing that. Uh, we're actually talking about marriage, um, but I thought that uh, when, we, when I would say that we were talking about marriage that it would feel so squirmy uh, for many of us that the only thing that would feel like stranger was talking about tithing. So now that I've led with that, you all feel relieved that we're just talking about marriage, right? Uh, so that works. Uh, we're continuing in, on in our uh, series looking at the image of God in all of us. And so as we're looking at marriage, we're looking at it through the lens of the image of God in us. And I remember as we were talking about this series, it was about a month ago, uh, and we were planning it out, and Jay looks at me, he's like, hey, I, I think I know the next one I want you to teach coming up here in a month. And I was like, all right, what, what is it? What do, you, what do you want me to teach? He's like, I'm going to have you teach on marriage. And I was like, me? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you're married. And I was like, that's exactly the problem I see here, <laughs> right? I mean, as somebody who's married, the thought of teaching on marriage, like there is nothing that will make you for, feel more like a hypocrite than having to be, <laughs> than having to be married teaching on marriage, right? Uh, so I'm already worried about this. And then last Tuesday night, I'm coming here to be with you guys while Jay's teaching. And before I come, like, I was at home uh, with my wife and daughters, with Robin and the girls, and I was just a jerk. <laughs> like, in the middle of preparing for this, like, I am acting like a fool. Like, I'm not practicing any of the things that I'm learning that I'm about to talk to you all about tonight. Uh, and I was just in the middle of it, and I had to come here, and I had to sit. I was sitting over there and just, like, stewing the whole time, realizing that I had been an idiot, right? And then having to sit through Jay's sermon, like that was just reminding me of the things I needed to do in my life. And then I had to go home that night and I had to apologize to Robin. And the next morning, the girls woke up and I had to apologize to them and say, hey, your dad's an idiot. And they're like, Callie was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Callie. Uh, glad we can have those honest talks together. Uh, yeah, so I just say all that to say, like, I'm talking about marriage here tonight. Like, I'm not an expert <laughs> at this thing at all, right? And so, like, we at least need to start with that starting point. Um, and because of that, like, I want to lay some other foundations here for us. Um, one, as we talk about marriage, you may be coming, you may be here, you may be married, you may be single, and hearing that we're talking about marriage um, could create all sorts of feelings for you. I just want to at least say this. I fully expect this will be the least romantic talk on marriage that you will ever hear. Uh, I feel like that's something that's squarely in my wheelhouse to accomplish as well. Uh, my wife can attest to that, I'm sure. Um, but I say that to say, uh, wherever you are, uh, whether you're married now or have been married in the past or want to be married in the future or never want to be married at all, uh, I believe that this is something that God has to speak the same truths to us in the middle of this. So um, we'll move forward with that. And I'll explain that more in a bit. Um, also, this uh, tonight, this isn't um, five tips to a better marriage uh, or anything like that. Um, I think that there is a lot of goodness to be found uh, in the Bible. I think the Bible is full of truth. In fact, I feel like there is no greater source of truth to be found on earth than the Bible. Uh, but all that said, it is not the only source of truth, right? Uh, science provides a lot of things for us. And if you are in a marriage where, or a relationship and you're finding challenges, you're finding difficulties in there, uh, seek out counseling. Counseling is a really fantastic tool. Uh, and sitting and listening to pastors is no substitute for actually sitting and talking to somebody who knows what they're talking about in these situations. Uh, read books. Read books on conflict resolution and communication and getting along and all sorts of those other things. There's all sorts 
bunch of good stuff out there. This is not that. So just to, to lay it down from the beginning, if you're getting ready to like elbow your spouse or something about things, there's probably not going to be those moments that are going to be coming down tonight. So what are we interested in today? Uh, tonight we are interested in, in this. What difference does God make for our relationships? What difference does believing everyone an icon or seeing the image of God in all of us, what difference does that specifically make, right? Because it's great to be able to have all these tools to work on our marriage, right? To, to have all these resources that we can read and all these things we can study and all these practical steps we can take. But I have to believe there's still something about our faith that affects how we see this situation, that how we see relationships with other people, whether it be romantic relationships or just relationships in general. There's something about it. I love in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is teaching, he's going through and he talks to the people and he, he starts talking about loving your enemies, right? And as he's talking about loving your enemies, he says very specifically, he's like, this is different than just loving, loving others, right? It's not just love everyone. I'm telling you very specifically to love your enemies because everybody uh, can, be, can be kind and loving to people who are kind to them, right? Like everybody believes you should love those who love you back. But he says, I am talking very specifically about, about what difference God makes for us. Uh, and that, that is to love our enemies. And so that's the question here tonight. Um, what are the things that we as Christians, that we who believe these things we believe about God and the image of God, what are those things, what does that change for us uh, that people who don't share that story would find themselves in different places? Uh, the last kind of foundation here is that just this acknowledgement that this can be painful, right? And I just wanna say that up front. Um, there's uh, many in here perhaps who have walked through the pain of marriage and divorce. Uh, there's some that perhaps are in the middle of walking through that right now. Uh, there's some that have experienced um, abuse in relationships. Uh, and first of all, on that situation, let me just say, uh, if you're currently experiencing abuse in a relationship, you need to find a place of safety in that and don't let any pastor ever uh, make you feel like you need to stay in an unsafe place for you or for your family. So we need to say that very clearly tonight. Uh, but as we're talking about this, with all the pain there, often what churches do is they talk about the difference that God can make and they package, package it into all these rules, right, about what marriage should look like, right? And then they hand these rules that you're, you're required to live out at that point and it come, comes loaded with baggage and shame and guilt and all these other things. Um, what we want to do tonight is to just talk about uh, what difference God could make in how we experience our relationships, right? And if we can see what difference it could make, then we, we all have those tools that we can take and we can go and look at our lives uh, and figure out what to do with that. My challenge to us tonight is that we would both be willing to challenge ourselves and be able to ask tough questions, right? Because it's really easy to just assume that, that I'm okay and everybody else kind of like needs to learn stuff, right? Uh, but I'm a big believer uh, that we should always be asking ourselves the toughest questions we can ask ourselves and, and, and look for truth in the midst of that. So let's, let's challenge ourselves tonight, but let's also be really quick to show ourselves and others grace as well. Fair enough? Okay, this is just the beginning of the disclaimers. This, this is such a loaded topic. Like literally, 
half my sermon is just disclaimers, right? <laughs> like there is more to come. You'll get used to all of these disclaimers. It's really wonderful. Uh, so we're going to be able to move forward today, and we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, which if you're familiar with this at all, you know this is just going to be a treat for us to get to look at this passage today. Uh, and it won't be controversial at all. Okay, so looking at Ephesians chapter 5, when in Ephesians, Paul is writing to the people in the church in Ephesus, right? Uh, and so as he's writing them, he's starting to give them advice. And these first two verses here will give us some context for where he's going. So he starts by saying this. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, so let's start with the second half of that verse there, right? So he's talking about how, how God loved us, how Jesus Christ loved us, that Christ loved us in a way that was sacrificial, that he loved us, he gave himself up for us, right? And so it's saying as a result of having a God, of having a Jesus, of having a Christ that loves us in this way, he says, follow that example, Right? So as a result of how we are loved, it says something about how we should live our lives as a result. So what he's going to tell us next about how we should live our lives comes fully out of this understanding that the things he's going to tell us go back to the love that God has shown us. God is setting the example. We are to live that out and follow that example. So there's the foundation. All right, let's get into the juicy stuff. Uh, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 goes into... Uh, the marriage part. Here we go. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right, let's just stop there for a second. Can we go back to talking about tithing instead? I feel like that'd be safer at this point. I think that, I think that Jay owes me like a thank you card for being willing to like take this crazy passage. Um, yeah, this is complicated, um, and there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on culturally that we'll dive into in a second, uh, but I know that just reading it uh, right away, that I'm feeling the daggers coming, especially from the ladies in the audience, and just want to say, like, we will, we will get to this. We will, we will talk about this, and it will be okay, um, but just, like, stay with me through the rest, right? So if we don't say that, like, everybody's just going to tune out right away, and we're not going to get anywhere. So I feel you. Also, Sarah Bessie is coming next week with Jesus, with Jesus Feminist. All right, all right, so let, let's, let's proceed here to the, to the next part of this, and then we'll come back. All right, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, it's said, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, so a couple of more foundational things before we dive into actually trying to learn from this passage here. Uh, first of all, what is this marriage thing that they are talking about? That, that is the question. Uh, because we think about marriage for us today, 
Um, and there's all sorts of things that go into this marriage concept for us, right? You, you're trying to find the right one. You're trying to find somebody that you're attracted to, that you have chemistry with. Uh, you're trying to find somebody where there's romance, where there's a spark. Uh, we talk about love and sex and all these other things, right, that go into to our concept of, of coming together in marriage. That's what it is for us. And so, so many times we can assume that that's what's going on here, uh, but there's actually a different picture of what they were dealing with. Uh, I, I found a book that I really appreciate. Um, it's called New Testament World by Bruce Molina. Uh, and it just goes into a lot of the background culture in the New Testament. If you're somebody that you hear pastors say things like this a lot um, and you're wondering where they get it, uh, this book is one of those sources. Um, so I can point you to that later if you're interested. So here is what uh, Bruce tells us from his research about marriage for this world. It's really, it's really romantic. He says this, in the first century Mediterranean world and earlier, marriage is actually uh, symboled the fusion of the honor of two extended families and was undertaken with a view to political and or economic concerns. Even when it might be defensively confined to fellow ethnics as in first century Israelite practice. As a process, Mediterranean marriage is the disembedding of the prospective wife from her family by means of a ritual positive challenge, that's the gifts and or service to her father, by the father of the prospective groom along with her father's response. That's downright steamy, right? Like, you're getting that. You feel the, you feel the romance in that. No, it wasn't. It didn't have anything to do with romance for them, right? Uh, so for them, uh, they were not thinking about it in that way. For them, marriage was about uh, economics and politics, Right? It was about provision and it was about honor. So the women weren't looking for a husband that would be a companion or a comfort. Well, one, because they weren't looking at all because their fathers were looking for them because the women were considered uh, like just barely above property and just barely above strangers in the family. Um, so they weren't looking at all. But if they were looking, the only expectations they would have is finding a man uh, that was capable of providing for them and was well-respected as a citizen. It just makes you wonder what romance novels were like for them back in the day, right? Like, she sat there in the chair as she saw him enter into the room. She noticed how he walked and she looked. Her eyes were drawn to his nice round belly and she saw that he was good for securing food for the family. <clears throat> right, like, there's a whole... <laughs> that was bad. It, it would go in a whole different direction just because they're looking at different stuff, right? Like... I might have done really well in that society. <laughs> uh, so actually, um, th that historians are saying that uh, the, I the concept that love is an acceptable reason to pursue marriage didn't even start to come about as accepted until the late 18th century and early 19th century. So not until the 1800s did people even start to see love as a possible reason that might be acceptable why you might consider marrying somebody. And in the United States, historians say that it wasn't until post-World War II USA uh, that the economy actually allowed people to consider a, leg uh, like a legitimate uh, possibility for them. Right? At that point, that was the first time the economy was good enough. People didn't have to think about marrying for who could provide for them and their kids. Uh, women could actually think about not getting married on purpose um, because they didn't have to rely on somebody else providing for them for the first time. So all of our concepts of love and romance and equality that we have in our world today just simply wasn't what this was back then. 
So if we're talking about marriage, it's great that we can talk about marriage here today, but let's say that marriage was really a committed interpersonal relationship. That's really romantic, I know. Committed interpersonal relationship. And you may not be married today, but you do have interpersonal relationships, right? There are other people in your life that you are in close proximity to. And so all of these things we're talking about today apply to those situations. All right, uh, one more thing. Let's talk about the interpretation then. All right, so we have this passage that has all sorts of cultural stuff in it. First, we have to know that this is, part, this is one section that's part of a bigger passage, right? We have the husbands and wives section, and then we have another relationship that's the children and parents section that follows right after this. And then we have a third section that follows that is the slaves and masters section. And in all three of these sections, you have an uneven power dynamic at play in the relationship. These are not equal relationships. The women had no power, the men had all the power. The children had no power, the parents had all the power. The slaves had no power, the masters had all the power. And in each of these passages, Paul is going and giving advice to both sides of the equation. Now the first half of each passage, so which would have been the wives section here, the first half of each passage just kind of addresses the status quo. It addresses the culture as they see that it currently is. It tells them to be moral and to be honorable in ways they already believe that they probably should be moral and honorable, right? It's like my parents growing up telling me that I should uh, brush my teeth, right? Like they know that I should, that I know that I should brush my teeth, but I still need reminded and encouraged to do that, right? Uh, so, so the first half of these passages is just this uh, reminder of the status quo and, the, and this encouragement to, to be moral within the world they already knew. But then the second half of the passage, Jesus completely flips the whole thing, uh, flips the whole thing around. I call it the Jesus twist. In the second half of each of these passages, Jesus starts to give uh, commands to, uh, to the people who are in power. So he tells the people, he tells the, the masters that they need to treat the slaves the exact way that the slaves, uh, that they expect the slaves to treat them. He's telling the masters that they need to be in an equal honorable relationship. That would have been scandalous for them to hear and to consider. Then he goes on and talks to parents and he says, hey, not only do your kids have an have a obligation to obey you like you believe, but you also have a responsibility to, to, to care and to be compassionate to your children, to not frustrate them, to not exasperate them. Right? And then he goes on and talks about and he talks about husbands and wives as well and starts to tell husbands that they have a responsibility in this thing. All right, this is so scandalous that as he's talking in this passage, it would have been so scandalous for them to hear that, that these husbands were being called out like this that he had to actually give a disclaimer himself. Right? So in that passage we read earlier, he gets he gets to the that end part there and he's like, uh, he says, I know this is all a great mystery, which he, what he's saying is like, I know this probably sounds crazy to you, right? Like it sounds crazy for me to be saying these things, uh, but I'm talking about Christ in the church here. What he's saying is, I know it sounds crazy, but like, isn't this the example we see about what relationships should be like? Right, he recognizes how countercultural the things that he's asking them to do is. So you have the status quo, and then you have the Jesus twist. So let me say this, that first half of each passage is not an affirmation of the status quo. These passages are a rebuke to those who are in power. It's about the second half where, where the importance really lies in these passages. 
Um, let me also say that if we're going to say that the first half of these passages is an affirmation of the status quo, if, if we're saying that how he talks about husbands uh, or wives seeing the husbands as the head, um, if, that's, if, if he's affirming that, then we have to also say he's affirming the slaves and masters relationship, right? So a lot of other baggage comes along with these things that we don't want to be affirming. Does that make sense? It's a little complicated. Also, we can acknowledge that uh, because our relationships today don't have the power dynamics that these relationships back then had, uh, that both sides of the advice, both the, the advice to both sides of the equation, both to husbands and wives, apply to both of us, okay? That this is good advice on how we interact and relate to one another. All right, we got through that. Can we take a deep breath? Are we good? All right. All right, now we can learn from this passage, <laughs> now that we've gotten through all that. Uh, I want to talk about this. So when it comes to the image of God in marriage, what we have here is we have a risk and we have an opportunity. And we have a strong risk and a strong opportunity because marriage relationships are in close proximity. What it means is whatever good we contribute to a relationship or whatever bad or challenge we, we uh, contribute to a relationship, when we're in these marriage relationships or just these, maybe it's a roommate relationship, maybe it's a business partner relationship, these intensely close relationships magnify the, the, the positive and magnify the negative. Everything becomes much bigger in the middle of these situations. And there's a risk and there's an opportunity when we understand the image of God. Let's first look at the first half of that passage where we see the risk. Ephesians 5, through 24 says this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is a savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. All right, uh, again, the word submit there is the one that causes us problems for uh, as we hear this, right? It just doesn't click with where our culture is at. Uh, but the interesting thing is the word submit there has a little bit different tone uh, in, the, in this passage, right? So the word submit actually in the Greek means to like place someone at a higher rank or a higher um, perspective, right? And, and when we see that, we actually see that it's reflecting very strongly that passage in Philippians 2 that uh, Kate read during our time of worship, right? We're told in that passage uh, that if we have any encouragement from the things that God is doing uh, through Jesus, that if we like that, if we have encouragement, if it brings us joy, then we also should behave, we also should live, we also should act the same way. And we're told that in humility, we should consider others to be better than ourselves. We should consider them higher. We should, we should look, it says, we should look not only to our interests, but also to the interests of others. Right, so there's something wrapped in there, and that Philippians 2 passage is outside of this context of marriage, that just says when we look at other people, we should see what Christ did, and we should start to say like, hey, it's not just about me, it's also about them, and what's going on in their life, and what's going on in their world. And so the overall warning in this whole thing is given to us because uh, he knows that what's inside of us doesn't naturally lean that way. What's, uh, what's naturally inside of me leans to make sure that I'm taking care of myself, right? And if I can also, like, contribute to others around me, then that's great. But the natural part of me looks to my own interests first. And it was an apt warning for them, actually, in this culture. So 
this church in Ephesus that he's writing to, Ephesians, he's the letter to the people in Ephesus. Uh, so Ephesus um, had a lot of uh, Jewish people and Christian people, but it was a Greek city. Right, and in the Greek culture, uh, they had their own gods that they would worship, and they had their own cultural things going on. And Ephesus was where the temple to the goddess of Artemis was located. Right, so uh, Artemis was a goddess of uh, hunting and wild animals and protecting young girls, which is like the most diverse job description ever. Right, like I don't know how those things are related, but somehow she pulls it off really well. So, anyway, so so that was Artemis, and the temple of Artemis was there. Right, so in all the culture around them, women were were subdued, women were disempowered, women were held down. Uh, they were not considered equal. Right, and so there is this injustice that we see going on in the midst of that. But the interesting thing in the cult of Artemis was there was this empowerment of women which we would applaud and say that is really wonderful, right? But it wasn't just this empowerment of women. On the other side, it was a disempowerment of men, right? So it didn't just, uh, it didn't just right the wrong. It didn't just produce the goodness and the justice. It actually inverted it so that it was equally as unjust and equally as problematic just in the inverse way, right? And so here's the problem here is that when we don't understand the image of God in all of us, uh, when we seek the things that we need or when we seek the things that we want or the things that we desire, we run the risk, not just of elevating ourselves, but we run the risk of trampling or devaluing the image of God in others. And we need to be careful of that. This happens in all sorts of ways. Maybe it's we're pursuing justice for ourselves that we need and maybe we even deserve. Maybe it's respect that we're pursuing for ourselves, or happiness, or romance, or uh, maybe it's our career, right? That we're pursuing our career so much that we forget about how it's affecting those people that are around us, or our own social lives. Early in my marriage, this was a part of my story. Um, I was immature coming out of college. We got married young. Uh, those of you that knew me in college could have acknowledged my immaturity <laughs> coming out of college. Uh, so we got married, and um, not only was I very immature at that point in time, but uh, nearly right away, my wife Robin started having some mental health issues. And so she was having uh, you know, fear and anxiety and panic attacks, and she was having uh, depression. And so what would happen was she was in these unhealthy spots, and she would be at home you know, crying or, or afraid or, or whatever she was going through. Uh, but our friends would, would be hanging out, and like all my guy friends from college were still in town. And so I knew that they were hanging out, and I was having to constantly call and cancel on them. Right? And over time, like, that started to really bother me. And I started to just think about my friends were going to stop calling me and they were going to start hanging out without me. And then I was going to lose my connections. I was going to lose my social life. I am an extrovert. Like, so that's like the end of the world, like, worst case scenario for me, you know, that, that people would be doing things and not inviting me anymore. And so over time, I started uh, seeing her and I lost the compassion for her in this situation. And all I knew was that I had to make sure that I was still maintaining my social connections. And it was admirable, it was understandable for me to, to pursue needing social outlets, right? That, that's an understandable part of life. But in doing that, uh, I stopped uh, caring for how it was affecting her 
over time. And so I would leave and I would go and I'd hang out with friends and just know that she was like there in a pile of tears on the floor afraid and I was doing nothing, nothing about that. Um, the problem was this. The problem was that over time, I started to not see Robin so much as another human created in the image of God. I started to see her as an object that could help me with my happiness or an obstacle that would keep me from my happiness, right? And in doing that, she w lost the image of God for me and just became someone I was objectifying, somebody who was an obstacle to the things that I needed. And there's the risk. The risk is that when we stop seeing the image of God and those that we're close to in relationships, we just start to pursue the things that we feel like we need with no understanding of the consequence in the lives of others. And we end up contributing to the brokenness in others. So Paul encourages us to make sure that we can always consider others in a high manner, consider the image of God in them. The other part of this, we have this risk when we're in these close relationships, but we also have this great opportunity when it comes to the image of God in these relationships. Uh, here's where it comes up in the passage on the other side of it. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So here you have this picture of one, this uh, sacrificial love, right? This work, this action, but it's this work or action that like, elevates the other, right? This worker action that, that puts work into beautifying uh, or making presentable or making better, making stronger the other person in the relationship, right? Um, I went to spring break. Uh, we went down to the mountains uh, with my daughters, the Smoky Mountains. It was just beautiful. Um, and they were coming up to me. Uh, they like to do this. They were coming up to me with these rocks They'd be like, oh, dad, look at this rock and look at this rock I found. I'm going to take it home. And I would look at them and I'd be like, that rock's ugly. You know, like, like there's rocks like that, like in our driveway probably, you know. Um, but they were finding these rocks and, and they would look at me and they'd be like, no, dad, you don't, you don't understand. Like, you're not seeing it. And they would go and they would take it to a stream and then they would wash the rock off, right? And as they washed the rock off, you would see all these beautiful colors that were there in the rock, right? The colors, and you'd see the sparkles, and you'd see all the different elements that were going on there, and there was this whole different thing going on. And the problem was, is that I was so ready to discard that rock because I didn't commit to seeing it there, where they believed at their core that there was something beautiful there, and because they believed that there was something good there, they put in the effort to care for it, to, to, to wash it, to clean it until that goodness came out of it. Right, and this is the opportunity that we have in relationships with others, right? Is to look at them. Our world is, it's a messy world, right? Like we all got stuff going on and it gets messy and painful and we get mean with each other and all sorts of other things. Life just falls apart sometimes, right? But we have this opportunity in the midst of that mess to start with the belief that there's something beautiful there, 
to start with a belief that the goodness of God, the image of God, is in the other person, right? And if we start with this understanding that, man, even though it looks really ugly right now, even though years of dirt and grime and everything else have made this thing look something different than it used to, like I'm starting with the belief that there is goodness and there is beauty here, right? And there's the opportunity that when we see that goodness inside of them, when we see the image of God inside of them, then we can work to nurture that, to foster that, to bring that to life. We can see the other person and maybe, maybe they can't see it in themselves anymore, right? Maybe they're in a place where the, the, the darkness, the sadness, whatever has taken over, maybe they've been living their experience for so long that we just need to remind them of the goodness in them. We need to call it, uh, call it into belief in their own life for their own sake, right? And then maybe they can take up working on it as well. Maybe it's uh, seeing the creativity in others or the beauty in others. Maybe it's the joy, the goodness, their personality. What are the ways that we have this opportunity through sacrificial love to see the goodness that we know is there because God tells us it's there and to bring that to life? In my relationship with Robin, uh, that's the other side of this story, right? It's because I was... Uh, I was a jerk, and in that moment, I was corroded with all sorts of nastiness, Uh, and if I would have had to try to make the case for why I was worthy of keeping as a rock, uh, it would have been a, a weak case for me to try to make, but that wasn't Robin, right? And Robin saw the goodness of God that was still inside, and so she had patience with me, she was kind and forgiving and long-suffering, really long-suffering people. Uh, but as a result of that, she started to teach me about mental health, about what she was going through. Instead of just being frustrated with me, she decided to, to work on it with me and to walk through this with me. And as a result, over a long period of time, like, not only did it help our relationship to where we're in a, in a, in a really good spot right now, um, not only did it help that, but it, it sparked something in me that I didn't know was there, this, this passion for justice. Uh, the things I do now in this, in this church, in this community, in this city, like, are a result of the work that Robin has put into me and to helping to teach me and helping to show me and to have this patience with me so that I see people who are going through difficult times differently and I just shudder to think about what my life would be like if I didn't have that opportunity. I'm thankful that she saw it inside of me. One more disclaimer, like again, like there's abusive situations and sometimes we can think we can stick around and fix somebody and it's our job to fix them. Again, if you're in this situation that's unsafe, you need to get yourself some space. Uh, so don't, don't hear anything I'm not trying to say um, in that. We have a great risk and we have a great opportunity. There's one final turn in this. Uh, It's that this whole underlying analogy is that these relationships can look the way they can look because they look like God's love for us. They look like who he is. These relationships look like who he is. Uh, And the key to that is in the word love as husbands are told to love their wives, right? The word love excuse me, the word love that's used there uh, is there's a bunch of different words for love in Greek. Um, It's not the word for like brotherly love, you know, like I love you, man. Uh, It's not for romantic love. Um, It is about unconditional love, sacrificial, committed, 
unconditional love. Unconditional love is a love that, that it commits to love uh, beyond evaluation. You know, like dating is fantastic uh, because like you're in this evaluation period and thank God you can like evaluate <laughs> in those periods, right? Because you get into the middle of things, right? And you'll be going through and a situation will come up and the other person will say this or say that and you're like, I do not like that. Like I need to get out of here as, qu- as quickly as possible, right? Like this is weird right now, right? And it's so great that we have those, uh, those opportunities to evaluate each other and, and to go through those times. That, that's fine and that's good and that's healthy. But, but what we're talking about when we're talking about marriage, at least in this sense, is we're talking about stepping from that period of evaluation and stepping into a period where we are committing to work towards unconditional love, a love that goes beyond Evaluation, a love that goes beyond looking at everything that comes through and saying, do I like this or do I not like this? Do I like this or do I not like this? We are transitioning ourselves to loving in a different way. And the beauty of it is that's how God loves us. Right? We're told in Romans 5 that we have a God that through Jesus, that he loved us. He showed his unconditional love for us in this, that we, why we were still right in the middle of our failures our biggest, most ongoing failures, right in the middle of that is when he loved us to the point of dying on the cross for us. In the middle of it. In the middle of our failures. So that's what we see from him. And that's what this thing is about. That, that the, the marriage relationship we're talking about or even the interpersonal relationships of commitment we're talking about is us choosing to move beyond the evaluation period with others and choosing to show love regardless of the details that are coming across from time to time. The cool thing is this, right? When our relationships start to look like that, we're told that those relationships are a picture of God's love, right? Those relationships are a picture of God. And when we've been talking about pictures of God in this church, we've been talking about icons, these pictures that help us to see God more clearly So here's the opportunity we have when we work to create these relationships filled with unconditional love that maximizes the opportunity and minimizes the risks involved. Our relationship itself becomes an icon. Not just each of us individually, but what's going on together in our friendships and in our marriages becomes a picture of God to the world. We're gonna have the team come to close us out here. As we do, I just want to leave us with this final thought from Jesus that he told his disciples. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What he's saying here is how we treat each other says something about what we believe about one another. We believe everyone an icon. May we treat each other with the same love.